I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. Dirty moderates, uh, we're getting very close here to the holiday season, and uh, we will be going on hiatus for a couple weeks, but it won't bother you because you'll be listening to these episodes, won't you, all the time. But that is to say that I want to do something a little bit different. Um, And uh, those of you who listen to me probably uh, certainly know my political views and know my kind of unicorn uh, way of looking at politics. But, you know, you also may remember that I'm an American studies guy. I'm an Americanist, lover of all things America in its history, certainly its politics, and in its literature especially, and in its culture. And, you know, there's a saying that culture is always downstream from politics, which is to say the politics takes a little bit of time to catch up to culture. But when culture dominates and when culture finds a way to bring people together to have a discussion about themes and ideas that they watch, that they read, that they see, whatever it may be, I think something magical happens. And uh, I think m- the majority of people I know in much of America has been uh, gripped and absorbed by The White Lotus season two. Uh, much like they were the first season. Uh, But something was a little different, I thought, this time. There was something about all these good-looking and and yet manipulative, but also naive, as always, Americans heading abroad, in this case, to a very ritzy Sicilian hotel. And, of course, there is always the black comedy aspect and the murder I mean, after all, you know, the show opens and there's going to be spoilers here. So if you have not seen all seven episodes, then you might want to wait. Definitely listen to this episode afterward. But, you know, we've got Megan Fahey who plays Daphne. She's the strawberry blonde wife of um, the fantastically gorgeous and wonderful actor Theo James. uh, Criminally handsome, by the way. Um, They're on the seven-day trip, right? Everything takes place within a week like the first season. They were in Maui last time. Now, like I said, they're in Sicily. So they're in Italy, Palermo and all of that. And she goes to take a swim in the Ionian Sea, right? And water's beautiful and dreamy and blue. And uh uh-oh, it's a dead body floating. Boom. Where are we? We see dead body. We see the morgue. We see the cops. And that's how the show begins. And, you know, the White Lotus thing, the White Lotus theme and the White Lotus idea is to create this perfect kind of economically short seven-episode series, almost in a British way. Um, The creator is Mike White. and. Everything's economical. Everything's within an inch of its life. And you know what happens, but not who does it, but you know what happens at the beginning. And then we go backward, right? Almost like Columbo. Show's very different from Columbo, but we, we know who did the crime. And then you have to figure out, you know, who who committed it. You know, we know there somebody was killed, right? So in this sense, this is this is how season two starts. And of course, Sunday night's finale was so scorching in its perception, I thought. And of course. It's all about perpetrators and victims and conflicts and guile, but also the American idea that Americans go abroad, right? They go from the new world to the old world to lap up the pleasures of the history, so much older than our young two and a half century old country, right? Buildings that are a thousand years old, monarchies that are, you know, 2000 years old, you know, diasporas and history and museums and, 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 all sorts of churches and basilicas standing there, you know, like as eternal as eternal symbols for old world culture. And 
particularly, obviously they went to Maui, so that's the United States, but it was sort of an island uh, fever kind of thing. In this case, right, you've got all these people heading abroad. Mark Twain wrote a famous travel log called An Innocence Abroad back in 1860s. He traveled all through Europe and Africa and all sorts of stuff and commented on the differences. But I'm watching this finale. I'm watching the whole season, by the way. But I really dove into it, I think especially with a special kind of depth and commitment this time because it reminds me of Henry James. Um, so as an Americanist, right? The great Henry James, American-born who spent most of his life in London writing some of the greatest novels of American literature, uh, Wings of the Dove, The Ambassadors, um, and of course, Portrait of a Lady. And I think that the majority of characters in this episode, this seething, exciting, passionate episode where so much goes on, right? They all kind of come to represent Isabel Archer. Isabel, Isabel Archer is the woman who goes abroad, the American in Portrait of a Lady in her stifling marriage, hoping to find a way toward liberty, only to realize that even though she's being sought after by a man she truly loves and he kisses her, she can't leave. She stays trapped. She's enswirled by her own doom. And at the end, the old world, which was full of promise, right? full of nostalgia and potentially even full of change ends up stinging. Well, no different, right? No shortage of things happened here. We had Ethan, right? Who was just fuming with rage over Harper played by Aubrey Plaza. Who's amazing thinking that she was hooking up with his friend, college friend from Yale Cameron, as I mentioned, Theo James, who's with Daphne. Uh, of course, Jennifer Coolidge returned. She won an Emmy for the first season. She is a just complete, well, she's a sideshow all herself, you know, tons of luggage, uber wealthy, fabulously funny, uh, almost high camp, so high you can't even reach it. Um, and she's an heiress, and she's in this loveless marriage, and she comes with her assistant named Portia, Haley Lou Richardson, very good, by the way. And she gets hoodwinked. She's there with a, a you know, husband who leaves her only to find out that he set her up. And in the end... She would be potentially killed by them in order to get her fortune. Well, it turns out she falls and hits her head on the dinghy, a little boat next to it, and she does die, and she's the body at the end. But think about it. All these guys are there, and they're all trying to kill her, and her husband had previously known one of the gay guys, the Tom Hollander character, right? Amazing. Amazing. So much going on. And then, of course, there's Michael Imperioli and F. Murray Abraham and and uh, Albie, played by Adam DeMarco. And they're all a family. It's grandfather, father, and son. And their performances are brilliant. We have the father. Michael Imperioli, I think, is the most understated, brilliant performance of it. And there he is, right, hooking up with a hooker that ends up hooking up with his son anyway, which turns out to be kind of crazy. And F. Murray Abraham plays a sort of classic uh, chauvinistic old world grandfather. Um, you know, they're out there looking to sow their Italian oats. Um, but, you know, the whole thing becomes that kind of mystery. The whole thing of arriving somewhere, in this case, under the Italian sun. Everything's golden, right? Everything's golden hue. This hue, this is also a, a very, very scathing depiction of the 1% mind you. So we're not talking about the everyday working class here, but neither was Henry James. He spoke of, you know, a lot of Europeans who swindled American heiresses out of their money because they were broke. Happened all the time. 
you know, you think that, you know, all this nouveau riche money is nothing. Well, in Americans who had, who had made their own fortune after the industrial revolution and in business and railroads and all that stuff, he would depict these characters that would go over only to be sought after by a European suitor, um, sometimes in France, um, uh, sometimes in Italy, different places, uh, many times in England, who would need the American money. You all may remember Downton Abbey. You may remember that Elizabeth McGovern, who was the American, had the fortune that paid for the mansion. It was really her money, not his, because a lot of nobles and a lot of royals in those days were land rich, but cash poor. All the money went into their estates, the baronesses and the viscounts and all that stuff. So here again, right? Jennifer Coolidge, here she comes, the naive American with her husband, who she thinks loves her, who mysteriously leaves her. Well, not mysteriously, but just disappears mid-season, says he has to go back. We find out he was involved, right? in a conniving, collusive way with these Italian guys who need her money. Man, they have a yacht. They're living the life. They English guy who'd moved to Palermo, right, and his friends. But they need the American lucre. They need the wealth. This is so Jamesian, guys. And I'm going to write about this more in my newsletter. But this is so exciting. And, you know, just like White Lotus isn't entirely cynical, you know, there's a lot of deep business about what makes love and what does betrayal mean? And when you leave somewhere, what do you discover? How important perspective is? But James isn't that cynical either. I mean, he, he can be essentially heartbreaking because his characters tend to have a sense of reality foreclosing upon them, right? Like I talked about Isabel Archer in Portrait of a Lady um, or Lambert Struther in The Ambassadors. You know, they go abroad and there is hope there. There is promise. And like I said, um, a black curtain gets drawn, you know, a veil. A pall comes over them by the end. Not always necessarily death, quite like death is so paramount in the White Lotus world. But White Lotus is, of course, you know, it's a it bottom kind of a murder mystery, but it's so much more than that. It's about money, power, dominance. But also, you know what? Life is about conflict. And for a lot of these people, despite their wealth and their means and their stature and their ability to actually go to this Sicilian Xanadu, they have to fight for their own survival, culturally, morally, physically, right? And the show is very much about class and its conflicts and its delusions, much like Henry James. Um, but it's also a lot about desire and buried desire and repressed desire. A very big deal. Henry James was, uh, though we don't know, he never married. And I know he had a very, very tormented love life. And there's a lot of theories that he was gay and couldn't be um, in the late 1800s, back in 1886, 1880, when he wrote, a, you know, toward the end of the beginning of the 20, 20th century, 1901, 1902, kind of when he wrote, you know, he ended up, even though he's American, he ended up renouncing his American citizenship because he lived in England so long. So he wrote with an American perspective about America, about American naivete, and about the delusions that come with desire, and that the puritanical code that Europe doesn't have, that Americans bring over. Isabel Archer can't leave her rotten relationship with her husband, Osgood, even though she's in love with a guy called Casper Goodwood. She, she sees liberation at the beginning of the novel, and by the end, it's only a flash of light at ecstasy, only to return uh, to Paris, actually, in the case of the book, to the miserable cage that she's helped maintain around herself. So even though you could put us, like I said, this 
the show has an assortment of characters who can fit this fit this mold desire and the way it plays out a midst class conflict is so key to james and so key to this right ethan and harper in a sexless marriage cameron and daphne have kind of a don't ask don't tell policy about what they want to do albie um the son of michael imperioli in this um he doesn't want to be like his father because his father uh uh, Michael Imperioli's character is divorced from his mother because he's been a lifelong cheater and he has a sex addiction. Meanwhile, Albie ends up sleeping with one of the two hookers who kind of end up winning the day, so to speak, because they get, he gets hoodwinked. He's the wide-eyed American. She says, I need $50,000 to get this pimp off my back. Well, we don't even know if he was a pimp. And as he tells Portia at the end of the, one of the last scenes of the show, at the airport on the way home is I got played, right? So Portia is also getting played. Portia is the assistant to Jennifer Coolidge, and she gets very drawn to a young, cute, blonde guy, an actor by the name of Leo Woodall. His character is called Jack in the show. He's supposed to be um, Quentin, Tom Hollander's nephew. Turns out he's just a boy from, I think, Essex, England, who's he's a high-paid hooker, right? And he turns out to be in on it. Jennifer Coolidge catches the Jack character fucking the Quentin character. So Quentin's trying to steal her money. He's got a boy hooker on the side. She is in a loveless marriage. Her husband secretly involved with them or secretly knew um, Quentin and they'll kill her if they have to, because if she divorces because of the prenup, she says, prenup, prenup, prenup. If the Jennifer Coolidge character divorced um, her husband, um, well, then he wouldn't be entitled to money. But if she dies, the fortune is his. But the fortune then ends up having to be split with the European guys, the European gay guys, who want to refurbish their palazzos. Again, right? The cynicism, not of the show itself, but the sort of dark foreboding nature of what seems like you might call the old world comes to sort of swallow the new world, right? To use another American lit analogy, perhaps it's the old world is is the whale in Moby Dick, the white whale, which eventually eats and destroys Ahab, its tormentor. I don't know. A lot of ways you could be American studies about this. But again, Ethan and Cameron end up having a, a physical fight in the water. You know, Ethan reveals what he knows to Daphne, right? And in an amazing scene, Daphne played by Megan Fahey, wow, he says, I think something's going on. Uh, in the last episode, he says this on the beach. He says this to, Ethan says this to, um, to Daphne. She turns, she pauses, her strawberry blonde hair all windswept. She ponders. She goes, I don't think you have anything to worry about. And she then says, we never really know what goes on in people's minds. She says it very matter of fact. Again, Fahey's fantastic. She then says, you spend every second with somebody and there's still this part that's a mystery. It's kind of sexy. And then you see her and Ethan start walking along the beach toward an, an island that's adjacent. You know, seemingly maybe they're having a sexual engagement. I don't know. If you've watched it, you know this. And I don't just want to do plot. I want to get into themes. And only say that because finally, finally, Ethan and Harper get it on after that, right? I mean, they finally consummate in, you know, a passionate way. So whether it took the idea that Cameron and Daphne both might have fooled around with either of them, 
Cameron also seemed to hit on Ethan on the night of the hookers when he said, I want to be inside of you. So Cameron's just a sex fiend. I think so. Probably has more than a bromance crush on Ethan, but they only kind of touch on that. But seems like he and, um, he and uh, Harper made out at least. So she says possibly Ethan and Daphne did something, but the sexual revving up that comes from it just seems to go. I mean, it go, it's amplified. It goes to the nth. It goes up pretty unbelievable. Right. And of course, you know, Jennifer Coolidge falls victim to um, her own stupid death, but she was going to be killed by her own husband and a group of European men, Italian men, or English men, rather, in Italy, who want to refurbish their mansions, their palazzos, right? Portia ends up almost getting in major danger from the nephew, who's not the nephew of Quentin, but Jack, right? Who's really a high-priced hooker. Albie um, gets the 50000 from his father, thinking Lucia really, really, really loves him. And what happens? Like any European can do in a James novel, right? Praise on the wealth. Praise not only on the wealth, but the wealth of naivete of the American. So Lucia predictably does that to Albie. She said, there's a violent pimp after, uh, after me. I need the money. And of course, Albie says to, uh, to Dom, who is uh, Michael Imperioli's character, he says, you know, um, uh, you know, this could be a karmic payment, right? And, you know, for all the hurt that he's caused his wife and his family because he's a sex addict, right? So, hey, give your son 50 grand, pay off a prostitute and do it, right? And it's interesting, you know. Obviously, Lucia has made Albie her mark. You know what I mean? It's been, it's been amazing. And he admits he's played at the end of the episode. He says that to Portia. Um, and there's so much going on, right? I mean, with Jennifer Coolidge is, I mean, some great lines too. When Jennifer Coolidge says, you know, you know, um, I saw, tells Portia, I saw Jack fucking his uncle. I don't think that that's his uncle, you know, and she realizes he's going to pay them with my money so they can decorate their houses or some shit, right? These gays, they're trying to murder me. Boy, she's ready, you know? Um, she kills, you know, she steals the gun of, of, um, of uh, one of the guys in the boat and uh, kills Quentin and his friend. And right. Cause Daphne says, don't be a victim of life. Tanya doesn't want to be a victim of life. So she does what she has to do before killing herself. But the point is don't be a victim of life. Well, Americans sometimes don't get that Cameron and uh, Daphne seem to be the Americans that do. The others just seem in a hopeless world of privilege, in a hopeless world of desire, some buried, some enacted, but a hopeless world of delusion, right? Henry James always says he sort of cracks the idea of American exceptionalism, not just as a, a, a national, a nationwide, excuse me, not just as a national motif, but the idea that Americans will travel to Europe, you know, in all their innocence, in all their unknowingness, in all their naivete and, and stumble and the old world does sting, right? The last minutes are of the show are Lucia and Mia, the other hooker just dancing or not dancing, but prancing kind of down the street arm in arm. And they see this tall man who's supposedly the pimp. Well, remember Albie wakes up in the hotel room, Porsche is gone. I mean, Albie wakes up in the hotel room and Lucia has gone, you know, 
So I guess the karmic debt's been paid, right? The girls are free, the Italian girls, Americans are going home. The heiress is dead, but then so were her, so were her potential assassins. But the Americans thought they would hold the cards, right? The privileged knowing Americans. But they're too bound by their tradition and their own flaws and their own veil, their own ideas, their own puritanical natures, their own rules, right? Because they're so busy trying to believe and hope. Well, in the end, hope stinks, just like the old world, something else. So, folks, you know, White Lotus has a lot going on with it, and um, that is that is um, pretty exciting. Um, and it says a lot about America. It says a lot about where we are, who we are, and overall, it's a delectable, delicious, brilliant show. But it's a reminder of the old truth, you know, that, like I said, the old world stinks. Folks, thank you as always for listening. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast anywhere and everywhere you get your podcast. Also, of course, go to dirtymoderate.com and make sure that you get uh, our newsletter, that you're subscribed. Um, everything is there. It's a hub of all activity. Uh, make sure that um, you are registered to vote. I know that we just went through an election, but we are gearing up for 24 as soon as the midterms are over. We're in a presidential election time. 23 is going to be a very interesting year before we get to the election. Your vote.org, 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 vote.org. Do not forget to do that. Uh, and also, of course, make sure that you stay dirty, stay moderate, and stay safe. In this case, have a very happy holiday.